if you've ever flown goshawks like in cover sometimes they, they they lift their head up it's like a periscope and you can see them they they look and then they make a decision at that point and she put her head up and she's looking at the jackrabbit and she just poured the speed on and just like went right past the dog and like grabbed the rabbit and it was just like this big ball of dust and grass flying in the air and and welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Told podcast, brought to you in part by the fine folks at Marshall Radio Telemetry, the makers of the most carefully engineered and reliable tracking systems available, including the awesome GPS system. For more information on Marshall Radio or their products, just head to marshallradio.com. And also the Falconry Fund, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting and protecting the various arts and practices of falconry and the cultural and environmental assets that make it possible. For more information on the Falconry Fund or to donate, just head to falconryfund.org. So earlier this year, I was contacted by Paul Domsky, and he is a member of the New Mexico Falconers Association. He contacted me earlier this year to see if I could possibly do a series of episodes for the association and, you know, kind of feature some of the older members in particular that have been in the state for a long time and have made other contributions to the sport. So I told him, sure, I was definitely interested. And if we could work out the travel logistics and all that, I'd be more than happy to swing down and uh, stay down there for a few days and record a series of podcasts for them. And it was a lot of fun. I'm glad that we could work it out despite several different scheduling hiccups along the way. But overall, I thought that there was a lot of cool stuff that we were able to kind of talk about and get recorded and so the next roughly, I guess, five or six episodes are going to be kind of a New Mexico Falconers Association sponsored series of podcasts. And hopefully we can continue to do this with more state clubs in the future because it really is a great method of archiving and documenting the different voices that have helped grow and evolve different state clubs and that can discuss at one time just the different changes that have happened in some cases over the series of decades with different states. So if any state clubs are listening to this and want to make this happen, just feel free to hit us up and I'm sure we can figure something out. If you're interested, we would definitely love to help you get your stories and documented histories of the evolution of your clubs out there. If that's something that you're interested in doing so Anyway, without further ado, I think it's time to go ahead and just turn things over to the conversation that I had with Paul Domsky, and I hope you all enjoy it. Thanks again for joining us for another episode, and enjoy. And we are a go. So now we are recording out in Paul Domsky's, let's see... Well, you call this your your barn, your 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 spare house. What what what's the official name for this place again? Well, <clears throat> we we call it the building. Uh, <laughs> my 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 good buddy Greg Pins- Pinkston calls it the uh, the tough shed. <laughs> ah. Okay, well that's a interesting name, <laughs> but uh, this is also where I have slept the past couple of nights, and you know it's it's a nice cozy place. You know it's uh you know this is your uh, 
<laughs> it's all right. Yeah. You're, you're equivalent to, I guess it would be a Tom Smiley's man cave where we recorded earlier today, right? Yeah, yeah. That's kind of my man cave. I mean, it, it, it doubles as a place to accumulate all kinds of uh, random crap and uh, where I sit and uh, make hoods when, I, you know, when, I'm, when I'm making hoods. Nice, nice. And I do see a lot of, uh, of hood-making paraphernalia laying around here. And uh, how long yeah. how long have you been making these, by the way? Um, you know, I made my first hood when I was about twelve or thirteen years old, and uh, <clears throat> I I got out of the back of Field and Stream. There was the, this little pamphlet that was for sale for a buck, and my mom was really generous to me. This was back in the I don't know nineteen seventy four seventy seventy three seventy four time frame, and she ordered it for me and it had a little a little uh pattern for an Anglo Indian hood and I, I sewed up my I cut the pattern out and I made a couple Anglo Indian hoods. Of course I had no idea what I was doing or even the pattern was so sort of abstract to me, you know, as a kid. It's like I don't know exactly what this is and you know, I'm talking to my mom and my dad and they're like, Well, I think you need to sew or along these these lines here and, and make a hood. But yeah, those were my first hoods and uh and then, you know, when I finally, when I became a, a, a falconer back around uh, 1999, I sort of picked up where I left off and, um, you know, started with Anglo-Indian hoods and quickly progressed to making Dutch hoods and making my own sort of uh, attempts at making blocks. I'd never seen a hood block at the time. And, uh, yeah, I mean... Over the years, I've, I've made my own blocks and acquired blocks from, from different falconers. They've sent them to me, and here I am, sort of a semi-okay hood maker. <laughs> semi-okay? Well, I mean, from the response that you got whenever you just posted recently, uh, you know, it seems like you might be better than, you know, semi-okay, but, you know, I mean... <laughs> Like I said, I'm going to get one from you too, or a couple or, you know, whatever. So I, you know, I, I hope you're, uh, you're better than just, you know, semi okay, but you know, it's uh, the modesty. I, I like modesty in people in general. So that's good. Well, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't make hoods with a lot of bling. I mean, my, my, my big influences on making hoods were, are, are Doug Pinio. Um, I met Doug early on, um, I think at a, at a, at a NAFA meet and, in, in Amarillo around 2000 or something. And, uh, my, my sponsor was Tom Smiley and Tom always said, you know, Doug makes, you know, he's, he's the master, the, the Gucci of, of hood makers. And, uh, <clears throat> I went out of my way to really try to get in Doug's face. He probably may, may not even remember me at that time, but, um, yeah, I mean, Doug, Doug was a huge influence on my hood making and, uh, I, he, he gave me so many tips over the years and on, on his methods and ways of making hoods. And I, I aspire to make a hood that's maybe 50% of a Doug Pinio hood one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, fair enough. Fair enough. Like I said, it's, uh, it's always good to, uh, you know, to keep those, those humble qualities. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I always like talking to, uh, yeah, other hood makers and it's something that i know that i'll never have the dexterity nor the patience or you know just honestly just the uh <laughs> i i don't have the desire at all to even 
remotely kind of get into that world. Yeah. So I admire anyone that, that, that does. And, well, you know, I mean, I, I like collecting hoods as well as using them for practical purposes. Sure. You know, it's, it's another one of those, uh, dumpster fire kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of hobbies to get into. You can lose a lot of money quick. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, no doubt. No doubt. Though there's so many great hood makers out there anymore. Yeah. I mean, it, it truly is amazing. I mean, um, you know, Bill Barber and Chris Proctor, those guys are amazing. I mean, and Steve Tate is a, a hood God and, uh, you know, and there's, if you're on social media, you can look around and there's, there's guys from Spain who just, who, who, who make works of art out of every hood they make. I mean, my, all I try to do is, is make hoods that fit and are comfortable for the bird and that, that tend to last a long time, you know, and, uh, it, it's, a it's a relatively, you know, maybe modest goal, but it, it's something, you know, I think, I think. For me, that that's about where I'm at. So, and well, I enjoy it. You know, yeah. I really do. Well, I mean, if you're not enjoying anything that you're doing, there's no point in doing it for yeah, the most part. Exactly. Unless exactly. you just have to make money and and you and you get roped into a certain <laughs> level of income, which you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God, no, 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 no. Making money off of making hoods it would be, you know, that that certainly isn't a way. I mean, I I kind of put out the little little ad to to make a couple of hoods to pay for a bird, but. <clears throat> you know, then I, I got, you know, careful what you, w- careful what you wish for. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. I, uh, I got an order, a bunch of orders in, so now I'm, I'm working, you know, diligently to, to fill the orders. It's fun. I really do enjoy it. Cause it gives me a chance to go back and sit down and make a bunch of hoods and improve on each one. And, uh, yeah, you know, I just, I just like it, you know, yeah. handiwork. Well, I mean, we already established once I got here that my order was the most important so far in the, uh, well, of course. the order, of, course. Of, re- of, order course. of relevance. Of course. Of course. You know. No, I, it's it's all good. I know you'll get to them all eventually, but uh, but no, I mean, I like I said, the, the some of the other guys that I've known and that um, you know made hoods, you know, eventually it seems like a lot of guys end up getting burnt out on it and uh, yeah. end up having to take breaks or stop yeah. doing it. I mean, it's it's a good thing you still enjoy doing it, even though it yeah, seems yeah. like no, you know, no, I, I could never make hoods at that level. I'm not a I, I'm not a production kind of guy, and, and I'm <clears throat> I'm more of a craftsman. You know, I like to make sure that the beak openings are are, are good and to my to to what I consider good, and that the hood fits, and that's. You know, if the customer, if somebody doesn't like the way a hood fits, I'll take it back and we'll start over again. So, well, that's good. I mean, you kind of almost have to, yeah. it's, you know, going into this, that's something you almost kind of go into it knowing you end up having to, having to do for the most part. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's just, a, it, you know, it's like, I, I don't know if it was, maybe it was Steve Bodio in one of his essays somewhere along the line wrote about, um, you know, you, 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 uh, fly fishermen you know they in the off season they're they're busy tying flies you know it's it's you know and hood making for me is something i always get into in the late summer and then like by by november i don't want to deal with it anymore because it's like now i just want to be flying my birds you know and like i think steve bodia made the made, made some comparison with with um you know tying flies and during the off season you know hardcore fly fishermen are busy tying their flies just sort of to keep them in the game for the for the season that's coming you know and i, I I'm, I'm kind of the same way in that in that respect yeah no i mean that's understandable yeah. i mean it's it's uh no different than some guys that 
well, I mean, there's guys that love to fly micros in the in the off season, you know, the springtime yep. and yep. stuff, so they don't ever get out of the game yep. at all. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's no different than you know I, anything else. I guess you know you just want to keep doing it. I mean, there's plenty of guys that also just don't want to have a, a damn thing to do about it. <laughs> you know don't, don't want anything to do whatsoever with falconry during the off season too just because they need their break but try to reestablish the relationship with their family and <laughs> yeah just uh you know make sure that the uh divorce settlement goes through okay and they're not going to be out too much money and god forbid <laughs> yeah no it's uh that's cool though i'm i'm glad that i mean that's a long time to really be practicing this though i mean 12 or 13 years old is is a pretty young well yeah i mean i i i made my first couple of hoods when i actually i still have one somewhere in a box around here but um yeah i mean obviously i was obsessed with 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 falconry when i was a kid and you know i went through the normal the normal north american sort of cycle you know my side of the mountain and uh i a neighbor happened to have a fledged kestrel fall down their their chimney when I was I don't know twelve years old and I was you know when I saw that thing the the guy had it in a box and he showed it to my dad and myself and you know the look of wildness in that bird's eye it was like I that was it at that point it was it seemed like predetermination at that point and you know I had I. I the guy gave us the kestrel and you know, I was a stupid kid and there was no information available at the time. And, uh, it, it, it lived for, you know, six months and, you know, I, I feel bad about it still, but, you know, I, later on when I was in high school, I found a, a, a young great horned owl and I raised it up and then hacked it back. My parents had this little cottage up on this lake up in the upstate New York, <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, and that bird was super cool because I used to walk around in the woods during the day and it would follow me from tree to tree. And, you know, it ended up, we, there was a lot of skunks around and great horned owls are notorious for catching skunks. And it, it was, it became a proficient skunk killer huh. in our neighborhood. And, uh, so I know it, it turned out okay. And, you know, that was when I was like on ninth or 10th grade or something like that. And, as you know, you're you're a young guy and you're busy with school and other interests start to encroach and uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't I didn't get really back into the whole falconry thing until I was you know in my well, I was like thirty six, thirty seven, so like twenty twenty some years ago now. So. Yeah. Well, I mean that's. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> <laughs> ironically you probably had more success with a great horned owl <laughs> at that point in time than a <laughs> that, that a lot of guys that have tried it have had but uh yeah <laughs> i mean it's uh i mean it's like i said it i mean the fact that you also didn't know anything and kept a kestrel alive for six months in retrospect <laughs> i mean obviously that's you can look at that however you want but the fact that it lived six months instead of you know two days or whatever or whatever yeah, it's not yeah I'm, you know, yeah it was it was uh, <laughs> it, you know i don't know I, I i i was when i when i finally you know when i finally took the the plunge when i finally figured out this is where i was at i was reluctant to tell my sponsor i was reluctant to tell tom smiley about that whole episode because i was so embarrassed about it but 
That's, I mean, well, before <laughs> before there were regs and before there was really um, a lot of rules and information, especially in our country, though. I mean, sure. that's, I mean, you can view it however you want, but I mean, the the fact of the matter is, is that's that kind of stuff is how a lot of guys got their start. I know, I, mean, I know. And, I mean, and since then, I've heard so many stories. So I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm finally overcome that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's not it's not that we're condoning it we're just stating facts yeah you know? exactly exactly right. no i mean and and it's a real shame that kids today that there's so many restrictions on on you know handling animals from the wild you know whether it's a a raccoon that someone traps you know or, or catches down at the stream a baby raccoon or a you know or, or raising up a robin that fell out of the nest i mean people miss out on so much because it's so regulated and People have become so urbanized that, you know, bringing anything from the outdoors inside just seems so foreign anymore. I mean, I grew up in a world where, you know, we had, <clears throat> you know, I, I was obsessed when a, with a kid, as a kid to, you know, we, we, we hatched out ducks in the house. And it's kind of funny, you know, because we, we had all these things and then here I am as an adult and it's like, rabbits, ducks? Oh, it's like, those are the things I want to catch with my hawk, you know. Mm. Yeah. But um, yeah, you know, I think I think a lot of it it's it's sad because because the younger generations, I mean, I think are are kind of miss out because they're so far removed from the wild. You know? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, and um, you know, I mean, that's that's one like well, take my kid for example. He he doesn't care about any of this stuff. He's yeah. like most falconry kids that you know that grow up with the stuff they could care less yep. Yep. um i mean don't get me wrong there's there's definitely we all know people that whose kids ended up getting into it and but it seems like they're definitely the, the minority sure but i i am glad that my kid got involved in in something like scouts and stuff yep. so he at least has some degree of of yep. of um i don't know relationship i guess with nature right but you're right i mean it it really is easy for people to miss out on all aspects of any of this kind of stuff. Sure. That's why there's so much misinformation or just lack of knowledge in general about, well, birds as a, as a whole, not just birds of prey, but yeah, no, I feel you. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. It's a, there's a, yeah, people, people are very much more out of touch with nature than they used to be. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah. Well, I mean, was there anything else besides the, the experience with the with the kestrel that that got you interested in in the sport or did you really just i mean you said that you had stayed interested through your you know throughout your the you know the rest of the early part of your life and you didn't get back into it until your mid-30s but i mean what what was the deciding factor to make you actually say hey i really want to re-pursue this um well you know actually it's it's you know where, where we're where we're sitting right now, which is my this little building that 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 I just that you know it's this this my my little man cave thing. <laughs> we we built it back in. My wife and I built it. Was we designed and built it and got all the permits and all the nonsense that goes along with that back in the in nineteen nine nineteen ninety eight I guess it was and uh, so I spent a whole bunch of time working outdoors and. Uh, it was the first time where I was able to, you know, rather than, you know, you, you, the progression, you know, like for me was, 
know, going from a student to a graduate student to getting my job, which was all encompassing and becoming like this. You know, I, I work in geosciences. I work as a geologist, geochemist, and it it was pretty much my life, you know. And then when we built this thing, I, I ended up spending like a whole fall working outdoors. And it's like, holy cow, look at that. There's, 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 there's a bird, you know, oh, oh, look, it's a Cooper's hawk. You know, and we live right here, you know, just, just, uh, east of the, the Rio Grande Valley on the other side of the Sandia mountains from Albuquerque. And it's a major, um, migration corridor. And I didn't know it at the time, you know, I was like, I was clueless obviously. And, but there's in the fall, there's so many birds that move through here. And one day I was out here working on this building on this, you know, this place where we are right now. And it was like, I heard this racket in this, in this juniper tree over to, you know, on one side of the building. I was like, what the heck's going on over there? You know? And suddenly this, this, this tohi flies out of the juniper and it's like flying right at my head. It's like, what the hell, man? And it's like, and right behind it is a sharp shin hawk, a sharpie. It's like coming right from my face. I was like, holy crap. And it's like, and it went right over my head. And I was just like, stood there and I was like, what just happened? <laughs> you know? And mm. it was like, and then it was like, it was like the, the, you know, it was like the fuse was lit at that point. And, you know, this was the late nineties. So the web wasn't quite, you know, it's nothing what it was like, what it's like now. You know, I think I went on, on Yahoo. That was the big search engine at the time and type falconry. And it was like, holy cow, there's all this stuff. I can, you can be a falconer. It's legal. You can get permitted. And that was like, you know, I, I, I contacted the state, you know, I found some websites. They said, you know, contact your state, get the falconry packet, this and that. And, uh, and that was the beginning, you know, the beginning of me get, my getting permitted. Well, that's good. Yeah. I mean, it's, like I said, it's, <laughs> I, it, it's amazing how many guys have those kind of personal experiences also, you know, kind of like the one you just described that gets them into it. And, you know, no matter what the the contrast is, you know, from person to person, everybody's got that one little spark. But we've talked to, we've talked about that many times, also outside of outside of this podcast for sure. But sure. But um, so I mean, what what bird did you end up starting with? Was it uh, red tail, like most people, or something different? Or yeah, it was a red tail. Um, it was it was interesting because uh, you know. The the state gave me a couple names of, of falconers who were local, and uh, one of them was Tom Smiley. And I called him up, and, and Tom was uh, – Tom is, is, a, is a gem of a person, and but when he doesn't want to talk to people, he can be a little gruff. And uh, <laughs> I called him up, and I'm like, hey, Tom, how are you? I'm, I'm, I'm this guy, and I'm really interested in falconry. He's like – okay, well, maybe, you know, call me back in a week and we'll, we'll, we'll talk then. I was like, okay, <laughs> you know? So it was like a week went by and here I am like sweating, you know? And it's like, I called Tom and we talked and he was, he was really, um, he was, he was just this guy who was like super, super awesome. And, uh, you know, I, I must've asked some of the right questions. I don't know, but he, he like says, okay, well, on, on, you know, next Saturday, I'm going to go out. And this, this other guy who wants to be, uh, <clears throat> who's, who's thinking about, you know, becoming apprentice wants to go out too. So why don't you come out with him? So that was the beginning of like my relationship with Tom Smiley. And, um, 
this other guy, Greg Pinkston. And Tom ended up apprenticing both or sponsoring both of us at the same time. And, you know, to this day, I'm, I'm best friends with Greg and Tom and, uh, and what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the, um, the first, first bird that you flew. Uh, the first bird, the first bird, of course. God, I'm sorry. So yeah. So we started out You're fine. obviously with, um, so that was like in the, that was like, um, January of, of, of 98, I would, or January of 99. And so by the fall of 99, I got all my, 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 I got my act together and, uh, had a muse, all my equipment and everything that, you know, everything ready to go. And, uh, sometime in early November of 99, I trapped a red tail and she was a big, she's a horse. She's a picture, one of the pictures on the wall over there. And she trapped it like 52 ounces or something, which for a Western bird is pretty much unheard of mm -hmm. and uh but she was like you know <laughs> 12 ounces of fat yeah i was gonna ready to say <laughs> living I... off of gophers or something right yeah know? and uh yeah no I, I flew her for my apprentice years and we were pretty successful she caught a bunch of cottontails and a bunch of jackrabbits over two years and uh yeah that was that was a i had a really great apprenticeship i mean hunting my buddy Greg, who was you know under under Tom as a as a, an apprentice, he and I would go out on the weekends and literally walk for hours with our birds. And uh, New Mexico, unlike a lot of places where you're starting with a red tail, you're really not there's there's not like you're hunting off trees. You know, you pretty much have to hunt them off the fist, and uh, it can be tough because red tails are notoriously not comfortable doing that. Yeah, you know, but we. We, you know, it, it started slow, but we got, we figured it out and we, we, we had, we ended up being pretty successful. Yeah. No, I'm not to ring our own bells or whatever, but. Well, I mean, there's a lot of people that, that are, you know, with red tails off the, off the glove. But I mean, ultimately, you know, you, you want to give your, your bird the best chance to, yeah, to catch quarry. And for sure. obviously for, for red tails, that's usually out of a tree or off of a tall pole or whatever, you know, um, but I mean, it's not like it can't be done. Yeah, oh but... yeah, no, 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 for certain. I mean, it. it I'm. <clears throat> I've only flown a couple of red tails. Unlike, and, and maybe my apprenticeship should continue. You know, maybe I should fly more. <laughs> and and one day I will because I I see videos of guys on on, like this guy Connor from California who flies red tails from a soar, and I'm, it just blows me away. And someday I, I really would like to do that, but. We'll we'll all die before we ever get a chance to do everything we want to do. I know, I know, I know, I know. I mean, unless unless we uh, you know, all chip in and start playing Powerball or something and get lucky someday. But but you know, I feel you. I mean, there's there's a ton of stuff. I mean, we we've, we've had the conversation how many times already about me whining about wanting to to move out here and not being able to. And sure, you know, I mean, it it is what it is. But yeah, we just well, have to have to deal with the hands that we're. Play with the hands that were dealt, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, there's a lot of the grass is always greener kind of, kind of vision too. So it's tough. That is true. That is true. Well, I mean, when did you? I, we we've talked a lot the last couple of days about, you know, uh, dog stuff as well. But I mean, sure. what when when did the whole, um, you know, group effort and coupling with with dogs start to play into? Uh, or play a factor in into everything for you sure um that's a good question um sometime 
sometime early in my in my falconry career so some somewhere in the i don't know around 2000 or something like that um i read the book by 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 steve bodio called corencia and basically it's sort of a memoir of steve's earlier life where when he moved from massachusetts to uh to magdalena new mexico and steve had he moved out here with a with a crew of dogs and among them were a couple of sighthounds and sighthounds are um are dogs like greyhounds and salukis and um scott deer hounds and uh and he also had some bird dogs, I think, like a um, couple of uh, Springer Spaniels, I think he had at the time. But he, he gives some really detailed descriptions of going out and chasing jackrabbits with these dogs. And I think in that book, he also talks about maybe chasing, it may, maybe because it's, it's an Arab tradition or an, a traditional way of hunting on the Arabian Peninsula with, with Salukis, which are a, a sighthound. And uh, and sacred falcons, and they they use them to course. So the the, the dogs chase the hares, and the um, and the the falcon comes in and and does sort of low altitude stooping at the at the hare and knocks it off its feet, and the dogs pick it up, or one or the other, the the hawk catches it, or whatever. And Steve talked about that in his book Corencia, and he also talked about um, a gentleman named uh, Dutch Salmon. And Dutch is also a, a, an author like Steve, and Dutch was known in the in the sighthound world far and wide, from California to Kansas and Minnesota. Dutch is a pretty pretty well known guy with sighthounds, and and Dutch lived down in uh, Silver City, New Mexico. And when my kids were little, around you know in the early two thousands, we were down there for spring break and. I was like, hey, let's look up this guy Dutch, you know. And uh, he had a bookstore down in Silver City at, located at his house. And we went down there and we just, you know, Dutch and I, we just sat there and talked about dogs and birds and the relationship over the ages. I was I was blown away by this guy's knowledge. He was, a, he was like such an intelligent guy and so, you know, um, well-versed in everything. Like made me, you know, feel like a kindergarten student and – you know, we talked, and a couple of months later, he sent me a letter and said, "Hey, I've got a dog. You know that I'm 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 not using anymore. Would you be interested?" And I was like, "Sure, I'd love that." You know, and it's like I made all these decisions without consulting my spouse, my wife Lori, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, "Hey, honey, on Saturday we're all gonna take a trip down to Caballo Lake, and you know, which is down like in southern New Mexico, and." we're going to meet Dutch Salmon down there. And she's like, yeah, okay, why? And I was like, well, we're getting another dog. And she was like, what? So <laughs> that was kind of the beginning of the end with me and Sighthounds. We, we got this dog. His name was Badger. He looked very much like a Saluki, but he was a long dog, which means he is a combination of like uh, different Sighthound breeds. And I don't know, the, these dogs have some, they have some sort of magnetic quality about them. And, uh, Badger had some health issues and he, he died at a young age and we got another dog from Dutch and he was an awesome dog. His name was Chance. And, uh, <clears throat> and during the interim, we met some guys who bred Salukis and we got a couple of Salukis and, uh, it's, it was the domino effect after that. We ended up going deep into the Saluki world after that. Well, I was pretty fascinated by the history 
that you told me about the breed and because I don't really know much of anything outside of you know the basic breeds and sure. then of course Vigilas, which I own. Yeah. But awesome dogs. I definitely want you to go into some of the history um, of Salukis and, and some of those other you know sight hounds because I thought it was really cool. I mean, at least sure. what you told me. So. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, Salukis are 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 distributed or like let's let's call it the Saluki type or the Salukioids are distributed from um, sort of northern Africa and sub-Saharan Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa, they've got um, in in like Mali and in those areas where the Turigs are, they have a breed called Azawaks, and they're kind of a Salukioid. And uh, as you move north and east, you get into Morocco, and they have a breed called Saluji. Which, you know, there's some controversy in the Saluki, Saluji world about exactly the differentiation between them. And, but Salugis are, are a Salukioid as well. They're a slightly different build and slightly different shape than a Saluki. But overall, they're, you know, they're the same type. And as you move further east onto the Arabian Peninsula, you get into like Salukis. And, the, you know, the Bedouins um, kept Salukis. You know, the Bedouins were very poor herders. I mean, this is hundreds of years before there was oil in the Arabian Peninsula. And, you know, the the, the Salukis they had were these these Arabian Salukis are, are known for being very light boned. And they they might have slight longer hairs on them the, where the Salukis of northern Africa are smooth coated, they call them. And uh, and then as you move, you know, the these this breed they call it a breed and they basically it's it's been around for you know upwards of seven thousand years so it's an ancient breed of dog um a, probably a more correct terminology rather than breed is land race because the dog is this type of dog is distributed all along the silk road into china so, you know, you, the further east you go, the, the, they're, they're basically the same dog. You can see they look the same, but their size varies a little bit. Their proportions are slightly different. Their hair is a different length. Their build's either a little more muscular or not, depending on, you know, if they're in a colder climate or more mountainous climate. And uh, it's just a fascinating study, just like falconry. You know, it's ancient. It's something that goes back to the roots of our, of our being, really. You yeah. know, I, and the whole that whole concept just sort of fascinated me. I didn't really realize it until we started to get into it. It was like, holy cow! I like, you know, fell face first into something I really wasn't aware of, and look how lucky I am to be here. You know, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, so we we've, um, you know, we we made the great fortune of 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 meeting some really great dogs in our life. I mean, the first two Salukis we got were from, they're more um, Arabian type dogs, more of, you know, the Arabian Peninsula type dogs. And subsequently we've gotten more into dogs, which are more Persian. So they come from a little further east, more from uh, Iran, Iraq, uh, Kurdistan, and Turkey, you know, that region of the world, you know, which in, prior history was known as Persia and uh and they're just awesome dogs I mean I you know they're not for everybody certainly you know but um you know 
they work great with the, with Falcons. I mean, you know, you talk to Greg Rayburn and, you know, and you know Terrence Wright and these guys and Steve Bodio, they've all done this where they fly their Falcons and they chase, you know, the, the dogs will light out after a jackrabbit and they release their Falcon and the Falcon chases and makes shallow stoops. And it, it's just something awesome to see. I tried it for a while and um, I was more interested in keeping it a separate, keeping them separate. So I go out, I, we have Salukis and I just love going out and running the Salukis alone, catching jackrabbits. And uh, it's really intense sport. It's as intense as falconry. Um, it's different, you know, and I keep my falconry separate and I like to fly long wings on ducks and you know, I, I've flown a lot of goshawks, and you know the the cool thing was flying goshawks with a couple of with like one or two salukis. Because the neat thing about goshawks is, is you know, one day you can go out and fly jackrabbits or bunnies or whatever you want. The next day you can go and catch a duck, and the goshawk doesn't care, you know. So I could run them with my salukis one day, and the next day I could go and chase quail or chase ducks with them. So that was more my speed, you know. Sure. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, multiple obsessions are bad. <laughs> They're dangerous. <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, they are. Yeah, next thing you know, you find yourself uh, in all kinds of credit card debt and, uh, <laughs> you know, just uh, debt in general. And, you know, you're having to <laughs> you're yeah. having to travel around the country, uh, you know, making you know, making money to, to try and get out of it and stuff. Oh, yeah. I, I, I totally understand. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, so as far as the going back to, to the actual breed. Sure. Did, I mean, do they know for, or does anyone know for sure? I mean, if it dates back that far, six, 7,000 years, I mean, were, was it uh, like a lot of other breeds that was evolved somehow or, or um, you know, sp- uh, specifically bred you know from from wolves or something else or, or was it its own thing um i mean was it always it's did they always exist kind of as their own you know breeder species or does anybody really know or i don't think anybody really knows i mean if you look at the distribution of sighthounds around the mediterranean you know from from spain to libya you know and that encompasses this whole area you know, it's like like the islands of Malta and and Spain. They have um, uh, Ibethan hounds, which are sight hounds. You know, they've got these really, you know, these really triangular, big ears that stick straight up, and they're sight hounds. And like Spain has Galgo Espanol. They're they're these unbelievably fast dogs with unbelievable stamina. They're incredible animals, and it seems like. I don't know the I, I don't know whether they they you know I don't really know the much about the very beginnings of the of of whether Salukis and the the sighthounds around that region where they originally originated from, but there are from region to region you know as you move more towards Europe there are definite distinctions in them but yet they're all they're all sighthounds, so I, it it's a good question I mean you can go back and there's I think Steve's book, um, Steve Bodio's book uh, about hounds, his recent one, he's got a bunch of photographs in there, and there's this really nice photograph of a, 
a petroglyph. Yeah, he showed me that. Yeah. Day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it clearly shows this hound with, with lop ears and a curled tail, which is pretty diagnostic of a, a Saluki-type dog, mm-hmm. you know. So... Yeah, I don't. I mean, to answer, I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, that's and that's that's fine. I just wasn't sure if they were, um, you know, a combination of selective breeding from other types of of dogs, and, and you know, they eventually, you know, got what they wanted in, in in these dogs, and then you know, I mean, like I said, I'm I'm pretty ignorant with the with the history of this breed. So I, th- my opinion is, is that they that they couldn't afford to have dogs that didn't work. Mm-hmm. So they only bred dogs that did work, and these were the dogs that ultimately resulted. And where exactly that happened, I mean, you can go and you can talk to Saluki people, Saluki aficionados, and I think they would come to blows on where, whether it was the Arabian Peninsula or Northern Africa or persia or further east you know i i don't know i I really it's it's nearly impossible to say i would say yeah no i mean that's and that's fine at least i I know the history of 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 the breeds that that i've had personal experience with and and you know had in the past but yeah i mean (laughs) like i said it's 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 interesting finding out the history of a lot of these different especially the sight hounds you know from the middle east and things like that i just have no familiarity with it whatsoever so yeah yeah i'm i'm just learning (laughs) yeah i'm a student (laughs) yeah well and uh so i mean you're also um i mean yes we could go ahead and and bring up the uh you know the club that you're you're also involved in you know with the uh you know that you're trying to get the uh the podcast started with oh sure that kind yeah of stuff. so go ahead and talk about that a little yeah, bit. yeah 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 so the um salukis are kind of unique in that um you know everyone's familiar with the american kennel club the akc and how they have uh had their effects on different breeds of dogs you know usually for the worse because dogs get bred for show i mean a great example is the german shepherd you know, there's there's that you could you could Google it and find like photographs of German shepherds from like the 1900s through today, and you can see how they've gone from like having a nice horizontal top line and relatively square build to have this really sloping top line, and the dog's so exaggerated, it, it there's no way it could you know do its original function. So the Saluki world is you know to to, to kind of mitigate that there's there's a lot of salukis still in their country of origin so <clears throat> the middle east is a is a place that's a political hotbed and is really you know things get destroyed when there's wars and there's you know starting back in the 60s when the oil boom in the in the arabian peninsula people started bringing salukis over to this country and they wanted to, you know, show them and hunt them. There's organized hunting events that we do. <clears throat> but they had to be registered somehow. So this 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 secondary registry outside of the AKC was formed called uh, the Desert Bread Registry. Okay. So there's um, 
dogs could be brought over and they would be critiqued by people who were performance judges, people who knew how these dogs should run in the field, and people who were show judges who were familiar with the confirmation. <clears throat> so you could bring a dog over and you get three critiques done on the dog, and they would be entered in as uh, entered into a stud book. So it's basically a stud book. It's called the Society for the Perpetuation of Desert Bred Salukis. It's a mouthful, the SPDBS. Rolls right off the tongue. Rolls right <laughs> off the tongue, exactly. So this was kind of established in the 60s, and the, the breed club in the United States, which is the, the Saluki Club of America, accepted their registry, and they, they therefore were able to allow it to be entered through the AKC. So if you bring a dog over from, from let's say, Kurdistan or Turkey or something like that, tomorrow, if you were to go over there and fly over and pick up a dog and bring it back, you could get it critiqued, and then you could breed it to a Saluki that's here, and then the puppies would be called Generation 1 puppies. <clears throat> and then you need to get two more generations, and the third generation could be you know, they go through all this critique process. Every generation goes through the critique process. And then the third generation could be registered with the AKC. I mean, there's just a bunch of paperwork that you have to fill out. You take photographs, and you have people, you know, agree that, yes, this is really a Saluki and so on and so forth. But what it does is it keeps an avenue open in the Saluki stud book with the AKC to bring in fresh blood. So most stud books are closed. So I, I think, like, there may be avenues to bring in, um, like, dogs from Africa for, um, I can't think of the name of the breed now. Uh, they're little hunting dogs. <clears throat> Basenjis. Okay, yeah. For Basenjis. Mm -hmm. You know, Basenjis are pretty fierce little dogs. Yeah, I've, I've know, uh, I know a couple people that have uh, part Basenjis. Yeah, and, and yeah. Yeah, they're very... Intense. Very dog aggressive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, you have to be a serious person. You have to yeah. be an experienced dog person to deal yeah, with them. Very, and, very dog dominant, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and there's... So there's an avenue to bring that... I mean, they have a similar sort of a, agreement where their 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 breed is allow, allows that to happen. But um, there aren't very many breeds that, that allow new blood to be brought in outside of the stud book. So that... it. it it's kind of an outsider thing in the Saluki world. A lot of the established Saluki people don't really, they they would never breed to a, a desert bred dog just because they they don't think you know they don't they don't have any use for it. I guess. I got you. Well, that's cool. I mean, thanks for sharing some of that that history. <laughs> like I said, I you know it's it's a lot. So whenever you have something that dates back six seven thousand years, it's it's something that's kind of hard to. Uh, <laughs> it is kind of hard to condense but it is it is yeah well i guess this is this will be a good time to go ahead and uh do like we usually like doing and and um you know have you share you know one of your favorite uh you know hunting stories or experiences with one of your favorite birds or whatever the case <laughs> may be <clears throat> wow um yeah um I, I can tell you a story about um going out with my uh with my goshawk, um, Frida. She was a, a big female New Mexico goshawk that I imprinted 
I pulled her out of a nest down in southern New Mexico, sort of near the region where the the, the mythical Apache goshawks come from. And she was she was a beast of a bird. She was a big bird. She flew at like I don't know, like a thousand fifty grams. And um, but I used to take her out. I had a um, we used to have a English setter named Annie, and uh, our one of our first Salukis. His name was Rupert. And I remember this, Lori and I, my wife and I, were out in this place that we call the, the gravel pit. It's an old abandoned gravel pit, and it's, it's full of, you know, weird little terrain because it was excavated in different ways. And, uh, you know, it hadn't been used in years and had all kinds of sagebrush and chamisa and lots of, you know, prairie grass and stuff growing around. It was a great place to go hunting. It was just sort of this big maze area. It was really fun to get in there and search for bunnies and jacks and... Uh, I remember this one really well, um, but yeah, we were we were out there hawking, and it was getting late because I typically hawk in the afternoon because of my job, and uh, it was you know in the winter sometime. I don't remember. There's no snow or anything, but <clears throat> we're we're walking back, and the uh, the setter put up a jackrabbit, and it was running crosswise to the direction we were going, and Rupert the Saluki just like got on its butt and was like hauling ass and, you know, right behind it. And, and Frida comes in like at an angle and is like right behind Rupert. And it's just sort of like pumping, 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 you know, and she's like behind Rupert. And at one point she's just like, she just, you know, if you've ever flown goshawks, like in cover, sometimes they, they, they lift their head up. It's like a periscope and you can see them. They, they look, and then they make a decision at that point. And she put her head up and she's looking at the jackrabbit and she just poured the speed on and just like went right past the dog and like grabbed the rabbit. And it was just like this big ball of dust and grass flying in the air. And <clears throat> she and the jackrabbit and the two dogs like were all in this, <clears throat> this big, this big rolling ball of animals and, you know. The dogs stepped back, and she had control of the rabbit, and boom. It was just like, you know, it was just one of those kind of really brief things, one of those little magical moments that happens when you're you're out there and, you know, you get to see something that no one else has ever seen before. You know, it was just, it was just sort of magic. Yeah, one of, the, one of those nice zen moments when everything actually happens like it's supposed to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> one out of 10,000. <laughs> exactly yeah i mean sadly enough that's that's probably the real odds but uh well i mean is there anything um that you want to add here at the end um you know on on behalf or just uh mention something about you know the state club or um anything else that you want to to mention as far as uh imparting words of wisdom as well words of wisdom oh wow man <laughs> You're asking the wrong guy. Um, <clears throat> I can go back to my to my to my to Tom, to Tom Smiley, who's you know who's been my mentor in many ways over the years. Um, you know, the the first thing that Tom ever taught me was, you know, it's like he he gave me my first peregrine, and it was my first bird after when I turned general, and uh, it was a uh, it was an IS that he had ra raised and turned sort of into a screamer and. 
he, you know, one of the things that he said, and this, this is a, another word of wisdom, was that, you know, life's too short to deal with a screaming bird. So he, he <laughs> gave this, this little Tearsel Peregrine to me, and I was totally enamored of this bird, but I was, you know, scared out of my mind to fly it. And he's like, well, you know, he gave me certain steps to follow, you know, train it to the lure and let it kill a couple pigeons and, you know, be ready with, you know, pigeons in your pouch that it can catch and so forth. And he said, but above all, you have to trust your training. You know, and that's something that I've held close to me. And it's something that I try to, I've sponsored a few people. And it's like, you know, when you're going out there, you need to trust yourself and trust that you've trained the bird. You know, and if you don't trust your training, then maybe you need to go back and and rethink what you're doing, you know. Yeah. And then the second piece of advice he gave me was never throw your last pigeon. <laughs> Which if you fly, you know, and I, I fly a lot of long wings, and, and that one is the truth. Never, ever throw your last pigeon. <laughs> yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so yeah, that those those are my only words of wisdom. <laughs> cool. Well, I mean, I, I appreciate the, um, you know, you uh, getting hold of me, and and I uh, am really glad that you decided to to hit me up. What was it? Well, gosh, how many months ago was it now? Like four, remember. five, yeah. six months Something ago, like yeah. asking for, for advice about, you know, some of the podcast stuff. And, yeah. um, yeah. I hope that what little knowledge that I imparted on you helped, helped with that as well, but oh, it's it, been it, usually helpful, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I, I appreciate the, um, you know, the whole, um, you know, club being willing to, to have me down and, and, um, you know, do these series of episodes for you guys, and and I hope that um, everybody will will be happy and and, and get uh, you know something out of it. So, like I said, I, I really appreciate you know also you uh, you know hosting me and and for the the hospitality of the last couple of days too. Oh so. yeah, no, it's been a joy. I mean, I'm so happy to 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 get some of these guys documented who <clears throat> they're kind of under the radar, but they've contributed in a huge way that, you know, the younger generation really doesn't know about, mm-hmm. you know, guys like Madison and, uh, and Matt Mitchell and, and Tom and, uh, well, and Greg Rayburn, you know, I mean, going out there and, and, you know, he, he's doing it every day with the, with the, with, with his bird and his dogs catching rabbits. And it's, 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 you know, they're, they're legends that, 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 that people need to recognize. And I, I really think that it's, it's, I'm just so happy that falconry told exists <laughs> that that there's a way to do this now where you know you can go to, from state to state I'm sure there you can get these same stories in every state you go to sure yeah you know? and and um not I mean some people are more willing to share than others and I I get it yeah. um you know I mean ultimately yeah I mean I ultimately I just hope that somebody gets something from something (laughs) you know that that, that we do and there's no question yeah and and uh you know it doesn't even have to be from us i mean i i really just am um really happy to to be able to continue to to kind of help people share these stories that want to share them and uh to be you know kind of uh another avenue for that and anybody else that that wants to share their their stories however they want to share them with whoever they want to share them i mean go forth and prosper i really think that that everybody can get something out of these experiences that other people have so yeah. I'm, I'm with you yeah, yeah. i mean it, with, with today's technology i mean we we need to we need to really celebrate falconry in america 
you know, and I really think you guys are, are, you know, leading the charge on that. Well, I mean, I appreciate it. And, you know, it doesn't have to be just us and anybody else's. I mean, to be honest, anybody, anybody can, can do their own thing now. You know, I mean, the, the, the resources are there if you just want to put the time, effort and energy into it. But, but I appreciate the, uh, the props and the, and the sentiment. And, uh, hopefully we can continue to, to do this for, for some other clubs too. I mean, we'd love to, definitely. but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, any other last, last words before we finish up here or? No, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the most amazing. The most, it's more than I've talked in a month. It's like that's, the only time I ever talked this much is for work. Like, that's like, awesome. I just love the no, no. That's that's great. I'm done. All right. Well, I think then that would be a, a good note to end it on, unless you can think of anything else, no, and it doesn't no. sound like you you can. No, so. I'm good. I'm good. No, this was great. Thank you so much for coming out. I really didn't want. Was, didn't want to be interviewed, but <laughs> <laughs> well, you're you're going to you're going to be so, yeah. Whether you liked it or not, in this situation, you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> it's all good. Well, all right. Well, thank you again, and uh, yeah, let's go. Uh, let's go have another beer. Okay, sounds great, John. Thank you. All right. <laughs>